On Sunday, April 10th, 2016, we began a journey through what I dubbed the Genesis of Grace. This morning is our 54th study, approximately 2,700 minutes of teaching time. We have reached now the final chapter, Genesis chapter 50. It's my prayer that you've enjoyed our travels through Genesis as much as I have. Known as the book of beginnings, there is no doubt that Genesis has lived up to that billing. The book of Genesis explains the origins and the the purposes of all types of things. The universe, earth, man and woman, genders and roles, marriage, children. Talks about evil and sin and judgment, redemption and salvation. The book of Genesis explains why there's language and order and government, clothing, why the continents are drifting. It discusses the priesthood, the context, the precedent for communion. On and on, this list could go. Literally every single doctrinal or theological concept in that book, your Bible, finds its beginning, its origin, in these 50 chapters known as Genesis. And it's because this is the case that Genesis has helped us unpack answers to many of the existential questions that we as human beings face. The book of Genesis provides answers to the questions of of why do we exist? What is the meaning of life? (laughs) Why is this world so messed up? Provides the answer to whether or not there's any hope. And yet, while all of these things are helpful, as we noted in our very first study, Moses' fundamental purpose for authoring slash compiling the Genesis record, it's much larger than just the beginnings or introducing doctrinal concepts. You see, in recounting four events, four events where God directly injected himself into human affairs. Those four events were creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel, as well as recording four specific people that God interacted with. In a profound way, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In recounting these events and these people, Moses was illustrating to the nation of Israel, in the midst of the Exodus, an important reality that's still very relevant today. These people were not God's chosen for any other reason than one, God's grace. As we've seen in our travels through Genesis, the Hebrew people, these children of Abraham, they weren't chosen by God because of some inherent goodness. Oh no. It wasn't because of merit or some deservingness, nor was it ethnic purity. Instead, God's favor was given to these people independent of their actions. And therefore, the continuance of that favor, as we've seen, has always rested in his faithfulness and not theirs. You see, the simple context, this simple context, God's grace, is what makes the book of Genesis, in my estimations, the most grace-centric book in all of the Bible. Not only does Genesis recount God's interactions with humanity prior to the law, which was given to Moses in Exodus 20, 
But every scriptural argument made by the New Testament writers advocating God's amazing grace, it pulls directly from where? Not the law, but it comes back to the pages of Genesis. In a profound sense, what Romans and Galatians lay out doctrinally, it is Genesis that illustrates for us practically. By its design and with its specific intention, Every verse of this book, Moses directs to illustrate for you and I the genesis of grace. In our first study, I mentioned that every single story in Genesis oozes grace. Instead of law or some standard to measure worthiness, Genesis provides for us example after example, illustration after illustration of men and women of old who through faith and a promised Savior come to experience grace. It's my prayer that as we've gone through the book of Genesis, this study has accomplished the aim of pointing out that amazing idea. As we wrap up Genesis this morning, I'm going to take a very simple approach to our study. First, we're going to take some time and we're going to work our way through the nuts and bolts of the final verses, this last chapter. Then I'm going to close by placing the final chapter into the larger context of God's grace. Now, before we dive into verse 1 of chapter 50, just a quick running head start. Joseph has made his way to Egypt. Long story. But as a result, he rises to power, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, which was important because a famine was on the horizon. This famine ends up causing Joseph's family back in Canaan to come to Egypt looking for grain. Joseph recognizes his brothers, brothers who had sold him into slavery. They don't recognize him. There's a whole process by which ultimately Joseph reveals himself and invites the whole family to come to Egypt. They do. They settle in the land of Goshen. And 17 years later, Jacob makes the move at the age of 130. At the age of 147, Jacob finally passes away in Egypt. But not before making Joseph and his sons promise to not lay his body in a foreign land, but to take his body back, back to the land of his fathers. As with that context, Jacob's passing, we dive right back into the text. Verse 1 of chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now, following the death of Jacob, in addition to Joseph weeping, we're told most incredibly, all of Egypt mourned for Jacob's passing 70 days out of reverence and with this deeply held respect. Now, while you can read up on the Egyptian bombing process on your own, it's worthy of noting that what makes this situation different is that instead of the priests of Egypt embalming Jacob, it was instead... His physicians, a lot of the embalming process from the practical angle also revolved around paganism and some of the, the, the gods of Egypt. And no doubt, Joseph is wanting to make a distinction. And so we're told he commanded the physicians to embalm his fathers 
his father as opposed to just the priest. Now, on a totally related note, in case by just chance, Caitlyn Jenner is listening to our live stream. This is the only time in the Bible that a daddy transitions into a mummy. Verse 4. Now in the days... I couldn't resist. It was there. Now in the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and I'll come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went to bury his father and went with him. And with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all of the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And we're told it was a very great gathering. What a scene. Not only does Joseph and his family leave Egypt and head to Canaan to bury Jacob, we're told that they leave behind their little ones as a guarantee for Pharaoh. Letting Pharaoh know, we'll come back. This is just a, a quick jaunt. We're not going to stay there. We'll leave our little ones. That's just a guarantee, surety but we're told that there's this great gathering. It's not just Joseph and his brothers. This is a posse, an entourage that includes a lot of Egyptians. We're told in addition to the family, we have the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of Pharaoh's house, as well as the elders of the land of Egypt, which was likely a reference to the nobility, the ruling class. These, these would have been Joseph's peers. There is no doubt that this great gathering, making such a trek from Egypt to Canaan, serves as definitive evidence that Joseph, during the time he had spent, he had left quite a profound impression on a pagan nation that he had been called by God to serve. You see here the results of a man being light in the darkness. The respect, the honor. These people mourned and joined Joseph and burying his father. It's also worthy of pointing out that this journey to Canaan is the first and, and the last time that Joseph returns to the land of his fathers. It's been 40 years since Joseph has been back to the land, since he was sold into slavery, and it's in this moment that he finally goes home. Well, verse 10, they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. Joseph observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizarim, which is beyond the Jordan. Now, upon their arrival, this great gathering to the threshing floor of Atad, which was in the western part of the promised land, just beyond the Jordan, it's inside the country. 
Joseph, along with this great company, were told, observe another seven days of mourning for Jacob. It would appear from the text that their mourning was so great, so boisterous, and their presence so massive that all of the Canaanites living in the area took notice. Following these seven days, Moses tells us that only Joseph and his brothers continue further into the land to bury their dad in the cave of Machpelah, which already contained the bodies of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah, the wife of Jacob. It's interesting. But today, somewhere in the land of Israel resides a fully preserved, mummified Jacob waiting to be discovered. Google it. Do some research on your own. Some interesting stuff. Verse 12. So Jacob's sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Merami, which Abraham had bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite's property for a burial place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Now, there is one question that does demand just a quick moment of our consideration. And that is, why in the world do the children of Israel remain in Egypt? Especially when you take into account that the famine that had necessitated their initial move had ceased 12 years earlier. Like, it makes sense why they would come to the land to escape the famine. It was survival. But now that the famine's long gone and Canaan's fruitful again, why are they staying in Egypt? Why haven't they returned? And the answer? I don't think they were allowed to. Like, there's two things that are evident from our text. First, though powerful in his own right, there's a limitation to Joseph's authority, isn't it? We see that. Like before taking his father back to Canaan for a proper burial, he has to first seek the permission of whom? Of Pharaoh. Secondly, what jumps from the text is that Pharaoh, he fears them going back to the land. He doesn't want them to return. Like understanding this fear, what does Joseph do? Realizing that Pharaoh might be afraid that the, uh, you know, going back to the land, they might want to return. Joseph's like, no, we'll come back and here's our little ones. Most scholars see the ultimate enslavement of the Hebrews in Egypt occurring gradually following Joseph's death. For note, between Genesis 50 and Exodus chapter 1 is about 350 years, give or take. Quite a chunk of time transpires between the close of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And most scholars see that the enslavement, which is how they're introduced, the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt, the beginning of Exodus, most people see this as gradual, just kind of happened over time. And yet Genesis 50 seems to provide some evidence that the enslavement process had already begun. Like the very fact that Joseph has to go and speak to the household of Pharaoh and not Pharaoh himself to get permission to go bury his father may be evidence that a regime change had already taken place in Egypt, further adding to the new relationship and dynamic with the Hebrews. Anyway, verse 15. Just a nugget. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us. And they actually repay us for all the evil 
which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I'm going to push the commentary of that section to the end of our study. Back to verse 22. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt. He and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. <laughs> what a wonderful heritage, a legacy that Joseph possesses. We're told that he dwelt in Egypt. For years he dwelt in Egypt. The vast majority of his life had been spent here. And we're told that he saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, as well as the children of his grandson, Machir, the son of Manasseh. This tells us that Joseph not only lives to see the birth of his great-grandchildren, but he lived long enough with such vitality that he was able to have a profound influence upon them. I, I love this phrase. We're told that these kids, these grandkids, these great-grandkids, that they were also brought up on Joseph's knee. Joseph, with these little ones, Imagine bedtime with Joseph, Grandpa Joseph. Imagine the stories that Joseph told these little ones. I, I can imagine that Joseph told them about creation and about the God behind creation and how God had created all these things, the sun and the moon and the stars and the ocean and the land and all of the animals, but he had made all these things Declaring that they were good. Good for whom? Good for man. No doubt, Joseph taking the kids out on a starry night, saying, God hung those in the star for one reason, so you and I could stand out here and enjoy them. No doubt he told them about Adam and Eve and the garden and how life was made to be. No doubt tells them about the fall. And how Adam and Eve made a tragic decision. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life caused the fall of great proportions. Explaining why the world is the way that it is. I'm sure that Joseph also told them about the promise. That even in the midst of man's greatest failure, God came with a most glorious declaration. That he would provide a savior. That while man had messed it up, God did have a plan. A plan of redemption. He probably told them about Cain and Abel. About that old prophet Enoch. A man who walked with God and was not, for God took him. Extrapolating what that might have meant. 
a love for God, a walk with God. Probably told his kids about the old world and how wicked it had become. So wicked that God, his heart was grieved. And thus there was a judgment, a flood. Old Joseph telling his great-grandkids about Noah and about how God provided a way of deliverance, a form of salvation, a foreshadowing of larger things. But then even after such a judgment, man rebels again. Told them about Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and how God had to confuse the languages. But from that confusion, Joseph tells them that God called a man. A man who was living in Ur of the Chaldees at the time. A man who was a pagan idolater, a pagan worshiper, a man lost in sin, and yet God, through his grace, appeared to this man and called him to a most excellent journey to a future land, a land of promise. A man who initially had the name of Abram before God changed it to Abraham. I'm sure he talked about Abraham's calling probably talked about his failings, the trips that Abraham had taken to Egypt where he had failed and failed. And yet God's faith, God's belief, God's work, God's grace remained sufficient. Even though Abraham would fail, God would renew his promises. And Abraham, though an imperfect man, kept his eyes on something coming, told him about that day where God told Abraham to take Isaac to a hill in Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. Told him about Rebekah, Isaac's wife. About their kids, Jacob and Esau, how they wrestled in the womb. How Jacob tricked his father into receiving the blessing and the birthright. How he caused his brother to be angry, so angry he was going to try to kill him which caused Jacob to flee, to run to the land of, of Rebekah's fathers, how he encountered Laban, Rebekah's brother, and how he met Rachel, Joseph's mother, and Leah, and how he had been tricked. Story after story, telling him of Jacob's dream and his failings, and that day where he wrestled with God at the brook of Jabbok, I'm sure Joseph explained what had happened, how he had ended up in Egypt, how his brothers had sold him out, but that God had a plan, that God had used these things. He told his kids about his plight, how he went from slavery to imprisonment before his ascent to power. Story after story, you do realize that these kids on the knee of Joseph were given the same story that we've been looking at for the last year or so. The stories contained here in Genesis. Well, Joseph, verse 24, said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land of the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and, shall carry, and you shall carry up my bones from here. 
And that would, that would happen later on in Exodus. Moses would retrieve the bones of Joseph. <laughs> Poor Joe would spend 40 years, his bones, wandering the wilderness, trying to get back to the land. But we're told Joseph died. Being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As we seek to put our final period on our travels through Genesis, I'm deeply struck by how this book ends. I'm deeply struck how it ends, especially in the context of the book being all about God's grace. First, this book of grace, it closes, ironically, with a lot of death, doesn't it? Not only does the final chapter record the death, funeral, and burial of Jacob, but it ends with the death of Joseph. How ironic that a book that began with creation and a garden ends with a coffin and a funeral. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God had been clear to Adam that human sin would yield a certain death, that rebellion would isolate man from his God. God warned him, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And in Romans 6, verse 23, Paul reaffirms this reality by simply stating, the wages of sin is death. The book of Genesis provides substantial proof that indeed God, he meant what he said, and that his word became true. Absolutely no one, with the exception of maybe Enoch and Melchizedek, and you can look back and study them on your own, but no one that we've encountered in Genesis survived. Like no one escaped death. Adam and Eve, their children Cain, Abel, and Seth, every generation of humanity leading up to the flood, the family of Noah and his sons afterwards also die. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Abraham dies. Sarah. Lot. His wife. Family. Isaac dies. Rebekah. Ishmael. Hagar. Laban. Esau. Jacob. His wives. Rachel and Leah. Jacob's sons. Even Joseph. They all don't get out of the book of Genesis alive. They all die as a result of sin. Understand, it was a manifestation of God's grace that all these people died. Note that. And here's why. Death is the first step in God's plan for salvation. Because of man's fallen condition, God graciously eliminated man's access to the tree of life by introducing death to the human condition. You see, here's why death is so gracious. Eternal life lived in a fallen state, separated by God, separated from God. Life in that context, it is the very definition of what hell is. Separation from God. Meaning, in an act of His grace, God allowed death so that man would not be forced to live in his fallenness forever. 
Adam and Eve sinned. If they weren't kicked out of the garden, they could still have access to the tree of life. They could still live forever in this brokenness, this fallenness. But death, death affords man a new chance on life. It would have been just for God to have allowed humanity to live eternally in this fallen condition. And yet, God graciously instituted human death. Here's why. To separate man's existence, man's life, into two sections. Because of death, man exists as both the temporal and the eternal. In a sense, God allows every human being a taste of hell. We're all born in a fallen condition. We're all born into a fallen world. Everyone knows firsthand what life separated from God is like. And yet, because of the sweet grace of death, such a state, such a life does not have to last forever. The incredible reality of death is that it affords man a choice he would have never been given if he had remained in the garden and retained access to the tree of life. Here was, here was the option. Continue forever in hell through a separation from God or choose a new life to be lived eternally in God's presence. Death gives man that choice. It is death that allows the temporal man including all of the characters that we've come to know in Genesis. Death allows that man an opportunity to choose a different existence and his eternal state. Which leads to the second theme, the closing of Genesis centers upon. Though death is an absolute certainty, the stats are, are staggering. One out of one. It's 100%. It's nuts. Though death is a reality, certainty, Joseph's final words do something, I think, fascinating and beautiful. They point to this reality. Yes, death is a certainty, but so is a Savior. Look back at verse 24. This is how the book closes. We read that Joseph said to his brethren, I, I'm dying, but, underline these words, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. While in its literal application, we know that Joseph was, was likely speaking of one who would deliver the children of Israel from their captivity in Egypt. But I'm, I'm convinced Joseph saw much more than that. In a reference to Genesis 3, verse 15, when God promised a Savior who would miraculously come through the seed of the woman, Joseph removes all doubt as to that Savior's identity. He says, as clear as day, God will visit you. Yes, Joseph was a type of Savior in much the same way that Moses would become. And yet both of these men knew that they were but a shadow of a more excellent Savior to come. God would visit his people and become the ultimate savior from sin and the hell that it creates. And note, this statement where Joseph refers to the land which God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I hope you know by this point that that land spoke way more than just a plot of turf in Canaan. 
the land that was promised to Abraham, this land in which the Savior would lead them to, it's undoubtedly heaven. Consider Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. We're told by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Note, for he waited. This is what he waited for. The city which has, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Heaven and the presence of God was always the destiny. With death of the mortal man, the mortal body, being the gracious passage between the two. But it was these men and women's faith and the coming Savior that would ultimately lead them home. This is why, think back to last study, on his deathbed, Jacob, he cries out, out of nowhere. For what? For the salvation of the Lord. He cries out using a word never been used in, in the text, Yahshua, or Joshua, or as it's later translated, Jesus. And this is why we're told over and over and over, these men and women who died in faith, we're told, were gathered to their people following the physical death. You see, grace Grace demands death for heaven to be a reality. Specifically, grace received by faith in the atoning death of Jesus. Though these Old Testament saints were only provided a limited understanding of this, I don't think they could see the whole picture. But they knew a Savior would be provided when God visited his people. Today, we know that happened. That it was through Jesus' death on the cross that we might be saved. Friend, if you reject this fallen world and are reconciled to God through Jesus, the Savior, through his death, your death, this is what it'll do, it will end your torment as you instantly enter his glory. However, if you choose this fallen world and reject God's Savior, your death will do nothing but continue your torment as you are cast forever from God's presence. It's been said, for the believer, and think about this, please. For the believer, this life is the closest to hell you're ever going to get. This is as bad as your existence will ever be. But for the unbeliever, this life is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. In Christ Jesus, the lowest point of your earthly life will be the lowest it'll ever be for you. Let's be honest, there are some low points. But contrast it. Apart from Christ, the highest point of your earthly life, that's the best your existence will ever be. There is one more reality 
that Genesis 50 presents for us along this entire train of thought. And that is the fact that grace is a difficult concept to personally accept. It's not an accident that the final picture we're given of the children of Israel, what is it? It's them doubting the grace of their Savior, Joseph. How fitting. Though it's been 17 years since Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. 17 years since he had forgiven them for their wicked deeds. 17 years since he had invited them and their families to come and live with him in Egypt. 17 years since he had saved them from famine. 17 years since he had afforded them a new life in Goshen. Though it's been 17 years since they had been lovingly cared for by Joseph and prospered immensely as a result, the very moment Jacob passes away, a nagging doubt immediately surfaces. What if Joseph had only been kind on account of dear old dad? They begin to think, what if what if Joseph, even for all these years, has really been concealing his true feelings? Wasn't the way that he handled it all kind of too good to be true? You see, these, these thoughts cause these men to now fear that Joseph will treat them differently now that he doesn't have to take Jacob into consideration. In such a state, these men, they don't even go and approach Joseph face to face, mano y mano. They send an intermediary to express their concerns. Ultimately, we understand that their fear was rooted in what? Their fear was rooted in the disbelief that their crime could really be forgiven and that Joseph could really be so benevolent. In a sense, their fear fundamentally questioned the motivation behind Joseph's incredible kindness. 17 years worth of kindness. They questioned his grace. It's sad, but Genesis closes with the children of Israel doubting the forgiveness of their Savior. Instead of accepting Joseph's favor and enjoying the life that he provided them, what do they do? They instead offer to be his servants in order to demonstrate what? Their worthiness. I'm not surprised that as we've seen with the Egyptians in previous chapters, that what will be introduced for such a, men, such a group of men seeking to earn that favor, they'll be given law to show they're not good enough. You know, how insulting it must have been to Joseph, right? For these brothers to again seek forgiveness for a crime Joseph had already forgiven. Like how hurtful it must have been to have his goodness called into question, to have his love doubted, to have his motivations impugned. I'm not surprised that Joseph reacts to this development simply by weeping. You know, that is, by the way, the seventh time that we've seen Joseph weep. Church, I don't believe it's an accident that we close the genesis of grace with the people of God questioning whether or not such a thing as grace 
could be real. A group of people, God's people, this book of grace, it closes with them doubting whether or not they've been forgiven. It's, it's a group of people who are now seeking to earn things from a Savior through service because they didn't believe he could really be that kind. I find this to be so incredibly relevant because it describes so many Christians today. Sure, no one will come right out and question God's grace. And yet people's actions say otherwise. Please understand this, friend. Anytime you seek to earn that which Jesus has already given, when you substitute his work of forgiveness for your attempt to be worthy of such forgiveness, you're in a sense calling into question the sufficiency of what he did on the cross the magnanimity of his grace, and ultimately, you're questioning his love. This is what makes legalism such an abomination. I have this image of Joseph weeping. Every time I read through this passage, I just, I kept coming back to this place. I kept coming back to John 11, where we're given this incredible picture of Jesus standing before the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. And what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. But note, Jesus is not weeping over the death of his friend. Instead, Jesus wept because his love had just been called into question by Lazarus' sister Mary. In verse 32, she accuses him of tarrying too long by saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She blames the death of Lazarus on Jesus didn't you love us? She questions his love. And he weeps. As illustrated in this account of the reaction of Joseph to his brothers, how the heart of Jesus must break when you and I substitute his grace for legalism, his favor for law, how his heart must break when we doubt the goodness of the free gift he's offering. How it must grieve him. Anytime we seek to earn the very forgiveness he's already given. Friend, the only way that you can fully receive the grace of God is when you first accept the fact that he loves you. If you can't accept the fact that God loves you, you will never accept his favor. Because you will never find that it can be real. By the way, it's love. So deep that it was demonstrated through the horrors of the cross. That's how much God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. May I ask, like I'm sure Joseph wondered, concerning his own situation. Let me ask you this question. What more can Jesus honestly do to express his love for you? What more can he do? I'm sure Joseph, when he gets word from his brothers, he's, he's like, what can I do? I forgave you. I called you. I provided you this land. I've given you everything, a new life. And you still doubt it. 
so many of you are doubting Jesus' goodness. And you're like, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And Jesus is like, yeah, I paid for all of that. I love you so much, I laid down my own life. What more do you want? What can I do to convince you? Think about it. What more can he say? Before you realize, he really does forgive you. There's no buts to it. There's no strings to it. He forgives you because he loves you. And he has a much better life for you than anything this world could ever offer. In closing, it's fitting that a book of grace ends with a Savior, the story of Joseph. But how equally fitting it is that the story of Joseph and his final words that wrap up this book of grace exhorts the reader to what? To look for the Savior. A moment when God visits his people. You see, the genesis of grace, it finishes up by pointing us not to a philosophical concept or a religious code to live by or some type of abstract idea. The genesis of grace closes by simply pointing you and I to a person. For the grace of God and the ultimate salvation of man could never have happened without the sacrifice that Jesus made on Calvary. Every story uses grace. And it closes by pointing to Jesus. The genesis of grace ends with Jesus. The genesis of God's grace ends with Jesus. You have no favor apart from Jesus, no salvation apart from Jesus, no forgiveness apart from Jesus. It just closes with not what you need to do, but what he's done. It points you to Jesus. In the beginning, God, and it closes with God will visit his people. The book of Genesis. It really is, when it's all said and done, all about Jesus. And so, Father, that's where we close up our study.